Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of the Talking Metal Podcast. And before we get into today's episode, I want to remind you we have a sponsor. It's going to be a great two-day heavy metal festival here in New York City, in Brooklyn to be exact. It's called Defenders of the Old. This is the third one. It's on March 13th and 14th. And this is amazing news. It's going to be the first concert by the reunited Canadian band, classic heavy metal band exciter featuring dan beeler alan johnson john ricci again it's their first u.s concert they will have played some concerts before this but this will be their first concert on u.s soil and there's a lot of other great bands too the rods october 31 and high spirits it's the defenders of the old festival march 13th and 14th in brooklyn new york at the bell house we will have a link up to their facebook page in today's show notes so Guys, we have a special guest co-host today who is also conducting all the interviews that you're going to hear on today's episode. Please welcome Mitch LaFon. Mitch, how are you? Good, good. Uh, I'm glad to see that uh, Exciter is back. I mean, I know, uh, didn't Kiss write a song about them at some point? <laughs> I think Kiss did and also <laughs> Judas Priest did. That's right. Probably a, probably a handful of other heavy metal bands. That's right. And, you know, great, great Canadian metal. We we are known for that. And uh, on my show, One on One, I, I've got Anvil coming up. So there's more Canadian metal in the talking metal digital family coming up. Great. Yeah, guys, if you don't know, which I'm sure you probably already do, Mitch has a show that we have here on TalkingMetal.com called One on One with Mitch LaFon. And so many great interviews from Alice Cooper to to Ace recently to... Um, Zetro and Exodus. Zetro, Exodus, and, Paul and Diano. Zetro is coming back on the show next week. Uh, oh, is he? Cool. Yeah, we are going to do a track-by-track track, 
of the new album, Blood In, Blood Out. We're going to go song by song by song, and he's going to tell me all the stories. So that'll be something to look forward to. Excellent. Yeah, and if you don't subscribe to Mitch's podcast on iTunes, definitely do that. Today's guest, again, all the interviews, uh, big big thanks to you, Mitch, for doing all these yeah. interviews. I'm, I'm psyched to hear them. We have Carla from The Butcher Babies. Yep. We have Clara from Crucified Barbara and Anne from Hellion. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's the all-girls uh, episode. Yes, yes. So let's get right into this right now. This is uh, Carla Harvey from Butcher Babies, who, you know, Butcher Babies, they've, they've taken some, some flack in the press, partly because, you know, they're two good-looking girls that front this band, and they've been accused of being a band that the label put together and not a real band. But at the end of the day, they really do produce some music that I think is, is, is pretty good and quite good, actually. And and they're definitely easy on the eyes, so those two things uh, give them a green light from me. I, I'm definitely into the Butcher Babies, and I'm excited to hear this interview that Mitch conducted. Let's get into it right now. This is Carla Harvey from the Butcher Babies and Mitch. We are speaking with uh, Carla Harvey of the Butcher Babies. Good day. Welcome, Hi. Welcome to uh, to One on One. Um. You know, fans know you mostly as the singer for the band, but uh, we're talking today because you're doing something different. You're talking about your new book, Death and Other Dances. Um, so, so, what what sort of compelled you to to write a, a novel? Well, I've always been in love with books since I was a kid. You know, I was a pretty introverted um, kid, and basically, my best friends were books and, and rock music. You know, heavy metal. I would literally sit in in my room all day listening to music and reading books or comic books or drawing. So, um, you know, it's just I've always loved books. I always wanted to write a book. And it was just finding exactly what I wanted to write about. And um, a few years back, I found what I wanted to write about, and I just went for it. So explain to, to fans who, who haven't seen the book or, re- or heard about it yet, what exactly? I mean, it's, it's sort of semi-autobiographical. Uh, yeah, and the reason I say semi-autobiographical is I don't like the word memoir. Um, my worst fear is that people read this book thinking that I wrote a book just because I'm in a band, um, you know, and that's not the case at all. Um, I wanted to write a book simply because I wanted to write a book. And um, one of the things that I'm uh, kind of passionate about is um, the breakdown of uh, the American family and our society yeah. and what it's done to people. And, um, you know, a lot of us are walking around very damaged and very lonely. We don't know how to love and have healthy relationships because of the way we were raised. You know, I think most of my generation comes from broken homes and um, it's, it's really affected us. And the other thing that's affected us is, is the way that we place death um, behind closed doors. Um, in nursing homes and, you know, people used to die at home and um, it, it was just a more natural part of life. And so anyways, we've become kind of um, cold, if you will. Yeah. And um, I, I've had a few different careers in my life. I was a dancer for a great deal mm-hmm. of time and then I went into being a mortician. And I found a connection between both of those careers in that um, people are craving um, touch and, and just 
you know, just a, hold, a hand to hold, someone to talk to. Right. We're not getting it anymore. Um, and my patients in hospice and my the family that was in the funeral home and my co- clients when I was a stripper were exactly the same. They all wanted that. And so I wanted to write a book about the correlation between the two worlds that I found. And um, in the process of writing the book, I realized that also what I wanted to write about was my own loneliness and alienation. And so um, it became more of a, a semi-autobiographical novel than I thought it would at the beginning, but I'm, I'm very happy with the way that it came out, and um, it helped me um, grow as a person as well, and I hope that, you know, people read it and, and get that out of it as well. Was it sort of cathartic then for you to get all these feelings out? It definitely was, and, you know, um, during the writing process, I, you know, I had it mostly written, and then there was, there was holes in the story, and I found that... Um, I had to go back in and, and figure out why there were certain things I wasn't writing about, you know, things okay. that um, that hurt too much to write about, you know. And, and then as I put those in, as, as much of a struggle it was for me mentally to um, put those things in, it helped me heal from things that, um, you know, had hurt me in the past. And uh, I think that if you want to be a, a good writer, you have to really be in touch with your feelings and you have to put everything out there. And so... I was very open and very graphic and um, just very honest in my book. Yeah, you know, that, that's important that we, you, you put yourself out there. If I may, what is some of your past? Sort of, if I can, where did some of this pain come from? Is it just per, uh, parental or was it, were you bullied? Or? I was a, a little bit of everything. You know, my okay. story is not different than many people, like I said, from my generation. Absolutely. I felt very abandoned by by my father, and my mom worked all the time to make right. up for the for for what we didn't have because he wasn't around. And um, one thing that is special about my book is that I talk about a coping mechanism that I developed when I was a child because I felt very abandoned, and um, I didn't want to be hurt ever again by anybody. So when I was eight years old, I decided that, so I didn't have to think about my father anymore. I was going to kill him off in my head. And right. so I imagined a scenario where um, I imagined that he died of a heart attack and that way I wouldn't deal with the pain of him not being in my life anymore if he just wasn't around. And I carried that with me um, into my adulthood and just literally every relationship that I ever had with people, I would kind of already prepare myself for them leaving by imagining how they were going to die, what was going to happen to them. And that way, when there was time for a separation or when they left me or, or whatever, right. I wouldn't be hurt. I had already gotten over it. <laughs> so um, that is kind of a, a theme throughout my book. And um, let me think of what else. Is, that's, but that's really, an interesting I mean, theme. And if I can just uh, sort of dwell on that for a second. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you think by having that mental preparation of people leaving you that it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where you sort of push them away and sort of force oh, of them course. to it? Okay. Of course it does, you know, and that's a problem that I had for a long time. It's not a healthy thing that I was doing, <laughs> for sure. Um, it, it's just, like no, I said, but I it, but it was interesting that an eight-year-old child would actually think to do something like that but that was my way of coping and definitely um, throughout my whole life I did push people away and um, you also tend to bring the wrong ones in and push the right ones away and you know um, you also kind of um, just uh, become very um, selfish because if you think that you're going to be alone and have to spend for yourself your whole life you just 
that's your attitude with everything that you do. And, um, you know, once I was able to, you know, I, I stopped being that way once I went to mortuary school, which was, I just became a different person. And, um, nowadays I, I just, I, I'm just healthier and my relationships are healthier, even with friendships per se. And, um, but, it's great healing process. And then, you know, writing about it all and analyzing really just helped me figure everything out even more so. I mean, you, you've got me totally fascinated here because first of all, you know, an eight year old has a great resilience and a great sense of survival that that survival mode kicks in. And, and so what you did was, was getting into that survival mode, but how did going to mortuary school and dealing with death make you closer to people that were alive? That that's, I find that fascinating. Well, you know, I'd always been fascinated with death since right. I was a child. In fact, my whole book starts off with that. I mm-hmm. saw a dog die, mm-hmm. and it totally fascinated me. And um, so, you know, throughout my life, I've, I've done a bunch of different careers. I worked for Playboy, and right. I, I was a dancer. I basically, you know, and even starting off dancing, that was a way of just me um, su- supporting myself and right. being very self-sufficient and... Um, kind of hustling. I've always had a hustle through life. I didn't have anything growing up, you know, Um, and moving to LA, you know, I just was hustle, hustle, hustle. And uh, I just, I did a lot of drugs. Um, I just, I wasn't very proud of the person that I was. I came to LA with a dream that I wanted to fulfill. And that was, you know, being a musician. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, that wasn't happening because of all the mental blocks and all the fears that I had placed on myself, you know? And when I went to um, mortuary school, I, and then I started working in, in, in the mortuary and in hospice, I realized how short life was. And I realized how precious, how important it was for me to, to get, hurry up and, you know, know, live my dreams and do the things I wanted to do with my life before it was too late. And, um, you know, especially with hospice, you know, watching people, who all they want is another day. All they want is their family to come see them. And all they, all they want is, is a good day walking around, going to a park or whatever. They're stuck inside, um, you know, these four walls that are just eating them alive. It's like, that's all they want. And here I was, and I had every opportunity in the world to do something amazing with my life. And I was wasting it in, you know, in a strip bar or doing drugs with people who fucking didn't really give a fuck about me. Right. It's like, I didn't want that life anymore. And I wanted to, to do the things that I came to do. And I wanted to get rid of all the mental blocks in my life that um, had prevented me from doing that. And like I said, just go forth and, and live my dream. And it's, that was very instrumental in me doing what I'm doing today, which is, you know, getting to travel all over the world and right. be the person that I want to be. And, and, you know, along with Heidi, you know, front this band and, and just yeah. get to live an amazing, healthy life. So, so what was the aha moment? Where, where did it turn around where you went, whoa, I'm self-destructive. Now I got to get to healthy. Was, was it a person? Was it the band? Was it the music? No, it was, um, it was actually, I had a very bad car accident. And, okay. um, so, so a near-death uh, experience then? Yeah, it was an experience, and you can read about it in, in, in the book. Okay. And, um, you know, I had uh, just been going downhill and downhill and downhill, and uh, I had one very cathartic experience. And with that, I decided that I was going to go back to school, and I was going to um, go, go to school for something that has fascinated me my whole life, which was death. So I went, and I was in a very dark place when I went to school. And my school was so demanding that 
there was no way I could do drugs again, even if I wanted to. You know, I had to be on campus every morning at 8 o'clock in the morning. We weren't allowed to, to be late. We weren't allowed to miss a class. And it was all chemistry, anatomy, physiology, embalming. And I had to be on, you know, and I hadn't been to school in a, in a decade. Right. Um, so it was it was very demanding. And I ended up graduating on the dean's list um, oh, because I put all all the energy in, that I had, you know, put into bad things into right. one very good thing. And um, I was able to heal myself in that way by going back to the thing that it first fascinated me in my life. So, so and um, I was going to. I was just going to say, now that you finished mortuary school, do you practice it at all? Do you, do you actually go? I, I was. I, I did practice for a while. I worked okay. at, a, at a funeral home called Holy Cross, and I um, worked for hospice. Um, but, you know, I actually had a, a big uh, – I, I actually got a job at um, one of the biggest mortuaries here in California. Okay. And that was exactly when my band started to do well, and I had to make a decision. Am I going to follow <laughs> – my initial dream, which was playing music, that's why I moved to LA, or was I going to have a nine to five job the rest of my life? And so obviously I chose music and I think I chose right because right, we're doing pretty well. Yeah. But, um, but you know, one day I would, I would love to go back into uh, working at a funeral home. I really, really enjoyed working with the families. Yeah, because I think a lot of people don't understand what the whole mortuary sort of world, it's not just dealing with the dead people. There's a whole consoling of the family and getting them to that no. next step and, and that's actually, it's, it's, it's almost like being that's a psychologist. That's the fulfilling part. It is. It's exactly like being a psychologist. And, you know, it's a very important time for families. If you can't get past the initial stages of grief, you're going to have huge problems in the healing process. And I really like facilitating people's grief and helping them out. And when I first went to mortuary school, uh, like I said, I was in a very dark place. I didn't care about working with the families. I really honestly just wanted to be in a back room somewhere embalming people. I didn't want to deal with real people. <laughs> right. I wanted to deal only with the dead. And then I realized um, my first job at a mortuary was doing the viewings every night. Right. And um, I loved working with the families. I loved, the, you know, some people, like, they just don't have anyone to listen to them just for a few minutes. Absolutely. Sometimes even getting that grief process started is just holding someone's hand for a few minutes and listening to them and, and not giving them some bullshit excuse about how God took their three-year-old baby away, just listening to them for a few minutes. And um, I, I absolutely loved every second of doing that. Yeah. That, that, you know, that, that, that's truly fascinating work because, uh, you know, people don't seem to, to, to understand the importance of, of getting through those initial uh, moments of grief. Um, now that you've done this book, is there a part two to it, or do you just focus on music? Well, obviously, music is my main focus, and it still was when I was writing this book. In fact, I wrote this book primarily while we were on tour, late at night in my bunker in the front of the, in the front of our RV. I'd stay up late and I'd write and write and write, and you know, um, whenever I could, whenever I had a spare moment. Right. But obviously, my life is very consumed by um, the Butcher Babies, which is the way that, that I love it, you know? Which is the way I, I love my band. Pardon? Which is the way it should be. H how do you compare writing for a novel compared to writing a song? You know, it's completely different. Um, but at the same time, after you... I, whenever I write a song, um, I usually... I've, I've always written in journals my whole life. Okay. I still do to this day. So I'll usually just do an, a writing exercise every day where I write for a half an hour, whatever comes to mind. And uh, usually when I write songs, 
I pull little bits and pieces from each of those, um, from whatever I've been feeling or writing right. at the moment and fit them together um, for a song. And Heidi um, then does pretty much the same as we put everything together and uh, see what comes up. Now, you know, if I can, the uh, album Goliath uh, from the Butcher Babies came out just a little over a year ago in July of last year. What's next? Are, are you finishing an album now? Are you starting an album now? Sort of where is we are writing our we are writing our second album right now. Is it? Do you find it harder writing for the second album? Because they always talk about that sophomore jinx. Um, I think it's a lot of pressure right. writing, but at the same time, you know, we just got to do what we do. You can't you can't uh, put too much pressure on yourself to make it better than it's not going to be like the first album it's going to be different and we don't know what that means exactly yet you know we haven't finished writing it we don't know exactly how it's going to sound yet and um we just have to if you if you worry too much about it you you stop enjoying the process and for me the creative process is the best part and i don't want to ruin it um you know we just have to be have faith that we are going to come up with something great yeah i look forward to that now i notice on the cover of the book uh, you've got a child that has sort of that Alice Cooper eye makeup of the early 70s. Was there any yeah. connection to that? And and it, does that, you know, he was also from Detroit and, and your band well, is also I, theatrical. That's my, um, that's actually, that's a picture of me. Oh. And that is the eye makeup that I wore in Butcher Babies for the first, you know, we used to, we used to wear a lot of theatrical makeup. Yeah. And that, that was my makeup. And, um, the guy who did my cover is named Johnny Jones. He's a brilliant, um, graphic artist. He um, made that cover for me, and I didn't. I didn't want to use it at first because I was like, "Oh, it's two butcher babies." But then I thought it, it was perfect, and um, yeah, that was my initial uh, butcher babies makeup with the teardrops, uh, the black teardrops. Yeah, it's, yeah. Is it important to be theatrical in a band? Yeah, um, I don't think it's for every single band, but for our band, you know, it was just a part of who we were. I grew up, I mean, I grew up in Detroit, like you said, you know, Alice Cooper's from Detroit. I grew up on theatrical rock and, you know, we're huge fans of the plasmatics oh, yeah. and uh, we wanted to bring back a show to rock and roll when we started because it's, it's been a lot of guys in, in board shorts and, and tennis shoes on stage in, in the last like, you know, yep. 10 years. And, and we felt that rock and roll was missing the show. You know, people pay a lot of money for their tickets and they want to see, they want to hear great music and they also want to see action so we um we had a blast you know in the beginning we did we had a blood squirting face we had yeah, um you know tons of makeup and you know now we've kind of scaled back um the theatrics we don't really do too much anymore but we still are very raw and there's a lot of energy on stage and we enjoy you know jumping around and banging in our heads because it'll always be important to us to bring that show um you know atmosphere yeah, I agree. I mean, I've always I grew up fans of a fan of Kiss and Alice Cooper and all those. I love a show. Just a band yeah. staring at their shoes. I can't take. I just can't take it. So yeah, exactly. So let's remind folks that uh, it's called Death and Other Dances, and of course, uh, it's available through pre-order right now at CarlaHarvey.com. Uh, yeah, not- you can always get it signed from me on yeah. my big cartel. It's carlaharvey.bigcartel.com. Right. But it also just hit Amazon and Amazon okay. Europe and Kindle today. That's fantastic. A pleasure talking to you. Thank you.
Guys, what you just heard was Magnolia Boulevard by the Butcher Babies. And before that, we heard Mitch's interview with Carla Harvey. She's got a new book out called Death and Other Dances, a website, CarlaHarvey.com. And Mitch, I don't know if you know this, but they share kind of management with with the Ozzy Osbourne camp. Yeah, mercenary uh, management. Uh, It's got to be interesting to be on the same roster that has the Prince of Darkness, right? Yeah. Um, It's got to be good for the career. Interesting band, though. Uh, You know, the whole theatrics, the blood, the the stiletto heels, the leather. It's, It's sort of like Wasp, but better looking. Right. Yeah, definitely. And Mercenary Management is run by people who work with Ozzy and Sharon. Blasco is one of the guys who actually plays an Ozzy solo band. He he helps manage Ozzy's career and also the Butcher Babies and another guy named John who we know. So uh, And George, our, uh, my old friend who's hooked us up with so many guests here on, on Talking Metal, helped make that interview happen. And a big thanks to you, Mitch, for, for taking that interview and doing a great job with it. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned Blasco because uh, I was talking to him just the other day about a Black Veiled Brides interview. And, of course, Blasco is the one who helps make those happen. So Yes, and you know. they're actually on Mercenary Management, too. So yep. Black Black Veiled Brides are connected with the Aussie camp also. Yep, absolutely. Uh, you know, Blasco, great guy. Great, great, does great stuff management-wise, and he does great stuff when he's on stage with any of these bands. So, uh, you know. Good for them. Yes, and he actually, I don't know if he still does, but he used to manage in this moment. So I'm not sure if they're still with Blasco or not, but Maria Brink, as long as we're talking about female metal women, let's listen to a little Maria Brink. This is Maria from In This Moment, but this time she's playing with Jakey Lee and the Red Dragon Cartel. This song is called Big Mouth, and it's off the 2014 Red Dragon Cartel self-titled record. It's a dirty night in a dirty town And everybody's tripping throwers Keep down in your cell On the rest Your move. This is a scarlet moon 
What you just heard was Big Mouth. That was Red Dragon Cartel with guest vocalist Maria Brink. So next up, Mitch, another interview that you've conducted. Clara Force from Crucified Barbara. Yeah. you want to tell us anything about Crucified Barbara? Well, you know, um, they have a new album, uh, which is coming out. Well, in fact, is out now, and it's called uh, In the Red. And I had a chance to hear it. They, they sent me a copy. And it's great rock. I mean, they, they, they really went from that whole punk sort of crazy extreme. And they brought it back. And I don't want to say mainstream. There's still a lot of edge to it. But it's a great sounding album. And it's, it's unfortunate that because they're from Sweden and because maybe they're even female, you know, in North America, we, don't, we tend to not look kindly upon that for whatever reason. But it's really worth checking out. And the interview with her is definitely worth checking out. Cool. Well, let's get into a little music by them. This is Rock Me Like the Devil. Then we'll get right into Mitch's interview with Clara Force, who is the guitarist and Crucified Barbara. And again, as Mitch said, they have a new album out called In the Red. So here we go. Rock Me Like the Devil.
Talking with Clara Force of Crucified Barbara. Good day, Clara. Hi. How are you? Good. Doing well. So, you know, we we're we're convening here to talk about the new album in the red. Now, you know, I've I've read the press release and I've read the information. I've heard some of the album. In fact, I've heard all the album, and, and it sounds absolutely killer. But you've actually gone on record. The band is saying this is your best record ever. Uh, why is that? Yeah. By far, it, it is. We are so proud of our newborn baby. Uh, I think it's the best in uh, all ways, lyric-wise, songwriting-wise, and just uh, the um, overall feeling and energy of it. It's, uh, it says a lot about us, who we are as a band and as individuals, and it's just uh, uh, like a mirror of uh, ourselves what we stand for, who we are, and everything. So, so it feels great to finally have it out there for everybody to hear. It really is. Now, you said the writing is better. Is it because just after you've done two, three, four albums, the writing just naturally gets better? Or did you actually take some time to really just focus on lyrics? And, like, you know, why is it? Why have uh, I Actually, we, we took shorter time to write this album okay. than the previous ones. There's been longer gaps between the previous albums True. than this time's between only been the last one and this one. Two years. On this so one. I think it's more a, a matter of uh, uh, when writing the songs, we had uh, uh, we, we wanted to to keep the spirit, kind of a live spirit to the album. So we were uh, constantly like focusing on how is this going to sound on stage? Uh, uh, and we wanted to keep that feeling of it. Uh, so we we were jamming this album together. Like we met every day in the rehearsal place for half a year, you know, like a normal day job almost. Right. Uh, we went there and just wrote songs, riffs, melodies, and just worked our asses off. And then we we 
constantly thought about how is it going to be to perform live. So that's been our focus all along. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, a lot of times when a band gets into the studio, because you can do all kinds of studio tricks, you, you get a tendency to use them, and then you go, oh, yeah, how are we going to do that on stage? So you thought of the yeah. stage first. Yeah, definitely. We, we don't use, like, impossible effects or do, like, uh, a, a thousand tracks of guitars or backup vocals because we want, want it to sound like... We don't want people to... Be disappointed when they see us live. They're gonna, we, we want them to to recognize us from the album when they see us live. It's very important for us, and it's also really fun to to come up with uh, uh, ways to to do the effects, not like uh, using all the computer stuff, but to actually use uh, analog effects in the studio Absolutely. and use the 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 way the room works and and the, the different microphones and the different amps and, and try to find the right sound while recording instead of editing everything uh, in the computer. So, so we, we try to be very like old school and, and true to, to what we actually can play like. Yeah. Now, um, you know, I was looking at the tour dates on the website. I saw I saw a lot of European dates. Is yeah. is there a plan for North America, Canada, yeah, and the well, US? There is, there is so much hoping uh, for for a U.S. Canada tour. I know what I know now is that we're going to go on the boat. Uh, okay, seventy thousand tons of metal. Yes, yeah, that's a great. Uh, so that's going to be awesome. Uh, and, yeah. that's a great cruise and 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 i don't say yeah. that because i have a friend who actually works on it and organizes it but it's a it's a great cruise a lot have of great you been bands. On it? Uh, no i've never been on it i, I have a, a thing about boats <laughs> i'm not a big fan of boats i like land there's nothing wrong with land <laughs> well but i yeah, was invited I to go yeah I think it's going to be a, a great time. I'm really looking forward to it. And we definitely hope that we can uh, get some uh, uh, shows on land as well in, in North America. That would be a dream. We had such a great time uh, with the last album. We did a long uh, North American tour. And it? and it was such a great response. And so we'd love to come back. Yeah, I know the fan. The fans dig it. Is there a big difference that you notice as a touring band between the European crowds and the North American crowds? Because to me, it seems as though North America has gotten more into just pop music and and not so much hard rock, unfortunately. Or or is that sort of um, the wrong perception? Well, I I thought the fans were great in North America, and and the big difference I would say for me personally is that in the U.S. people are so friendly and they talk a lot. <laughs> so there's uh, uh, a lot of you have to like prepare to be able to converse with people all day, every day, all the time, which right. it's not happening as much in Europe, I guess. But it's nice to, to it's a very social country, I have to say. It really is. You know, I'm going to ask you the silly question of the day, but I, I was reading an old interview that you gave in 2012, and yeah. it said that in an interview or 
when people meet you, they should never mention cute dogs or puppies. And what, is, what the hell is that? Is that true? Did somebody misquote you? Uh, well, no, I, I think it's what's maybe a, a kind of a, a joke, I hope. A joke question, okay. I guess. Yeah. But no, of course, if someone has the need to. To talk about dogs, sure. <laughs> but I, I, I'm a I'm a cat person. I, I think maybe I was thinking about like when when you're walking with friends, like yeah. uh, in the city or on the street, and you never reach the goal because your friend constantly needs to stop and point at, oh look at that cute dog, and yeah yeah, well I've seen dogs <laughs> before. Let's uh, get to where we're going now. I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah, sure. I, I don't hate dogs. <laughs> I thought that was a great quote. It just—it just seemed sort of out of the blue. I mean, you know, I'm reading this interview, and you're talking about—you know—the interview is talking about drinking vodka and doing this and the partying and the and the band. And then there's a line that says, "Yeah, just don't ask me about cute dogs or puppies." And I went, "All right, that seems kind of—that seems kind of random, but okay." Um, yeah, that's very random. <laughs> but but I, I guess there are more uh, important topics to, to cover than uh, <laughs> puppies, for me personally. But um, if sweet. I can choose, I'd rather discuss something else. <laughs> yeah, uh, like, like hard. You know, the band started off with a more, I guess, a punk sound or a more sort of street sound, and you, you, you switched over or you, you evolved into to hard rock. What, what drew you to the sort of more melodic side of the, the whole music biz? Yeah. Uh, I think it, it was not really planned. It was more right. uh, uh, of a thing like as you get more skilled as a musician, you okay. you evolve and you realize, oh fuck yeah, well, we can do this, and oh look what I learned how to play, and and you you evolve as uh, like technically, uh, right. and then in the beginning, Mia uh, wasn't in the band. She joined the first as a guitarist as a lead guitarist right. and when she joined the band that she brought some more metal hard rock influences uh, to the band which was great uh, and they, they have never discussed like what, what is our sound gonna be okay. we just know we love distortion uh, and we want to play hard heavy music and and then when we write songs, we let the, the riffs and the idea decide where they want to go. It's not like we have a plan. We, right. we just start somewhere and then see what happens. And if it turns out to be like a really slow, mellow, whatever song, that's okay. And if it's like really heavy, uh, slow, it could be that too. Or it could be uh, thrashy. It could be anything. Yeah. So, which are... I think is nice. Well, what bands are your influence then? I mean, listening to Crucify Barbara, as I have over the last few years, and the new album, In the Red, I always sort of thought, well, they must have been influenced by Motley Crue. They must have been influenced by those cans of bands. Is that about right? Are those your influences? Uh, well, no, not really. Okay. I think we, we take our influences from everywhere, and not just like other hard rock bands. I think... Okay. The interesting part about inspiration is not what you sound like, it's more where you get an idea. That could be anything from like everyday life, politics, what's going on in the world, people you meet on, on the road, or just like a, 
the story or you hear, or it could be music, it could be jazz music, like the the rhythm of whatever. I mean, I think to to really be creative, you need to find your inspiration just anywhere. I think it's good to keep an open mind and Absolutely. not be too selective like I want to be this I'm going to copy this sound I, I don't that, that that's not for me at least I think it's better to have a free spirit and an open mind and then uh, j- just do something you know it, uh, out of all the ideas it's funny that you mentioned politics because in that same interview with the, the with the uh, puppies, it said that we should be talking to with to you about politics. But uh, yeah. let's uh, yeah. let, let's move on here. The, are you still using the uh, the Gibson Explorer? Oh yeah, I, I think I'll never change. I guess why, why I, I really love that guitar. Uh, you know what? I, I've had this guitar since the recording of our first album. Mm-hmm. Uh, the exact same guitar, the, this this copy of it, and it's been with me for uh, all the recordings, all tours we ever made. So it's uh, like a, a part of me. And uh, but when I started to play, I I tried some different guitars, and I never really learned how to play. For instance, a Stratocaster. I don't even understand how they work. <laughs> it's a completely different instrument, almost. It is. And I, I just fell in love with the uh, with the Explorer. And people sometimes ask me, but it's so big and it's heavy. And but you know, when you get used to something, it just feels perfect. So yeah, it's it's my little baby, and I don't think I'm gonna change it ever. No, uh, no flying V's or anything for you at any point. Uh, Mia plays the flying V, and I think it's a it's a great match. Uh, it's a good look. The V and the Explorer. Uh, so that's her thing. She she does the V and I do the Explorer. That's a good that's a good match. Now, just before we wrap up, uh, what else do do fans need to know about in the red? Uh, well, um, I think uh, they should they should take a listen and and see for themselves. But uh, uh, I think it's kind of self-explanatory it's uh, the the lyrics we have a lot to say about uh, everything from like gender equality to animal rights to and, and that includes puppies to, uh, well it includes puppies as well <laughs> <laughs> sure right. sure um, let's know, not just speak about it no let's not speak about it you, you know you mentioned you, you mentioned gender rights and and you know, I wanted to avoid the question about, oh, what's it like being a female artist? But but since we're talking about gender rights, uh, yeah. is, is that something that you encounter? Do you think that, that the music business has closed some doors because, oh, they're just a girl band? Or do you think it actually opens doors and go, oh, thank, thank God, how refreshing and all? How do you see it? Uh, well, it, it's hard to, to answer because right. uh, I, I've never tried being, you know, in a guy's band, right. uh, I've never had the possibility to try. And but see but how do you find from, but from from my point of view, right. I guess it uh, it's been sometimes an uh, advantage and sometimes it's been a big disadvantage. So uh, it's hard to to count the plus and the minus and 
and noteworthy and up. I definitely think that. All right, so so let's look at it this uh, Society way. and music business ha- have some serious problems with the views on women sometimes. Yeah. Not not everywhere, not always, but but it, it still happens uh, in our modern society, which is kind of weird. So like, so uh, we've come so far and are so evolved. You would say, I mean, everybody always talks about the disadvantage. So what are some of the advantages of being an all-girl group? Uh, I, I can only speculate, but but I guess for some people it might be like, oh, this is something a little bit different. Right. It sticks out a bit, so I'm going to check it out. But at the same time, I, I know a lot of people, oh, it's a girl band. I'm not even going to read this interview, this uh, review, or I'm not even going to give it a chance. But stupid girls in, in hard rock. Uh, so, so. But I guess it goes both ways. Some people. Yeah, it's uh, weird though because I I do get some I, I do get that sometime as an interviewer I'll do an interview mm-hmm. with you know one of the guy rock bands and people say man I read that interview it was great and then they'll say oh well I didn't read the so and so you know it, it's a girls singer I don't care and it's like oh, what does uh, that matter I mean you know yeah exactly what does it matter I, I think we as I said we've come so far and. Uh, I don't think that should be an issue. Yeah, and that's why I wasn't going to ask you about it. But since you mentioned <laughs> no. gender equality, I figured, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, sure. might as well. Um, yeah. Of course, so, so let's remember everybody to pick up a Crucified Barbara in the Red. And uh, hopefully you'll be on tour in North America soon. Yeah, I really hope so. And uh, yeah, that was great. Thank you, Claire. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye-bye now. Okay.
What you just heard was Electric Sky off the new album by Crucified Barbara. Pick it up. It's called In the Red. And big thanks again, Mitch, for that interview. I've always kind of dug this band. I can't say that I'm an expert on them, but every time I hear a song by them, I'm like, wow, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, I've been hearing about them for years, and, and I, you know, I never went out and bought their albums and stuff, but I've always gone to YouTube, and it comes up as I listen to other stuff. It's a suggested song in a playlist, and everything I've listened to, I've enjoyed. So, I, in fact, I really don't know why I'm not buying their albums, but this new one, In the Red, uh, I listen from cover to cover, uh, and it's 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 great. It's really a good, hard rock album, and speaking to Clara, she, she was absolutely wonderful to speak with. Great chat. Great, great chat. Awesome. Yeah, I was shocked when I read that they've been together since 1998 or something. I mean, yeah. 15, 15 years or something like that. Yeah. So before we get back into the interviews, Mitch, I want to tell you about Squarespace. It's okay. it's a website place. You can build your own website if you're ever interested. And I know you have all the, the Facebook stuff and the Twitter stuff, but if you ever wanted to just have one central website, Squarespace is the place to go. You can start a trial with no credit card required, and uh, you can start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to go to squarespace.com and use the offer code METAL. That's all caps, M-E-T-A-L to get 10% off your first purchase. And it'll also show your support for what we do here on Talking Metal. We want to thank Squarespace for their support of Talking Metal. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. Cool. So coming up next, we have who? Who do we have? Anne Bolin of Helion. Excellent, excellent. And I said Hellion, but it's Helion. Is that how it's uh, You pronounced? know what? It, it's probably Hellion. In fact, I think she corrected me when I said it the other way. But I'm I, Canadian. We say things yeah. different. <laughs> gotcha. And this this is a, a, a band that goes back quite a ways, and a band that worked with the one and only Ronnie James Dio in yep. the very famous Sound City Studios in Van Nuns, California. And... If you haven't seen the documentary, Mitch, on Sound City Studios, you should definitely check it out. I have not. Is that something that's came out recently? Yeah, probably about a year ago. And a friend of mine, actually, Jim Rhoda, who plays in the band Fireball Ministry. Oh, it's a good band. Yeah, he produced the documentary with Dave Grohl. And it is all about this great city that everyone from Dio to Fleetwood Mac to Nirvana – uh, recorded in and, and in it was in LA and Hellion with uh, with Anne recorded there too under the supervision of Ronnie James Dio back in 1984. So let's get into your interview with Anne and of course having Mitch the the Kiss expert on the podcast. I definitely want to talk a little Kiss with you when when we come back. But let's get into the interview with Anne that Mitch conducted and we'll follow that with a little music. And then we'll come back and talk some Kiss with Mitch. We are speaking with a Helion vocalist, Anne Bolin. Good day, Anne. How are you? I'm good. How you doing? Good. Good. And I do have to, I do have to, uh, to correct you on them. It's Hellion. Hellion. Okay. Hellion. Okay. People say it all the time. And it's different. They'll say Helion, all kinds. Helion. Helion. <laughs> it's Hellion. Hellion. Okay. Well, you know, we're, we're uh, I'm Canadian, so... We have our own uh, pronunciation of so many words like about and 
all those wonderful a things. A boot. <laughs> yes, I'd like a boot. Um, but you know, we're we're let's let's talk and, and let's talk about your your whole career. Uh, you know, what I find interesting is, or the first question is, sort of why start up the band again? And I don't mean that in a negative sense. I'm just talking more on the perspective that the music business is just it's just dog eat dog out there. It's it's hard to get anything going. And you know, you you've had a successful career. You've been a DJ. You you you've been with a record label. You've done all kinds of stuff. Why get back into it? Well, first of all, it's not uh, it's not even a question of of why it, it because I think I was born uh, rocking right. <laughs> for a lack of of better ways to say it. I've been in bands for as long as I I can can even remember. Yeah. And, you know, it was uh, just a series of some very unfortunate situations that, that led me to be away from the, the business to start off with. I had some very, very serious problems with a number of stalkers okay. where it was basically I had to make the decision, do I want to be alive or not? You know, so wow. I, haven't, I haven't had that problem for, for a very, very long time. And I've got the support of a number of people that, um, make, me very, that make me very secure in what I'm doing. So... Um, I, I, it's just something I had to do. It wasn't, wasn't an option at, at, really at all. And yeah, the music business is terrible right now. It's probably harder now than at, at, at any point in, in, in my life to make money. I, you know, I think back about when I was first, you know, in high school and junior high and playing in bands like that. My, my high school and junior high bands would make between a hundred and $200 per person to play in, you know, high school gymnasiums and, yeah local places and things like that, doing cover bands, of course, but, but that was a long time ago. And it's not gotten any better. You know, that, that was the 70s, you know, and it's gotten worse and worse and worse and worse to the point now where, you know, the, the records, uh, the sale of, of, of music is, is not even, um, it's, it's, it's just like a peripheral concern. So, oh, look, there's a lot of bands that aren't even recording. They're right. not even bothering to record new music. And, you know, I think back of the days, you know, when I was releasing, um, you know, albums, CDs, cassettes, those formats, uh, uh, new Renaissance records. And if we sold, you know, 50,000 units, we moved 50,000 units. Yeah, it was okay for an independent, but it really wasn't anything to brag about, you know? No, not at all. Now, if you sold 50,000 units, you'd be number one on Billboard. It, it's, it's crazy. Well, you know, you just look at the, the new Ace Fraley, which I follow because he's hard rock too, and... He sold twenty thousand, and he's number nine on Billboard. I mean, twenty thousand in nineteen eighty-seven wouldn't even have got you on Billboard's radar, much less at number nine. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't even got you. Wouldn't have gotten you on to the probably the bottom of the, the Billboard two hundred. You know. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it, it, it's definitely different, and it's you know, we have as as consumers and as musicians and everybody else, we have to figure out a way that we're going to be able to you know support music and. It's uh, it's very very difficult. There's no there's no doubt about it at all. But it's something that I do because I love it. It's, I've I've you know I'd like to you know make my living at doing it obviously. But uh, it's not something I just have, have ever done just for money. So let's if look I, at, if I had, sorry go ahead. I was just gonna say well let, I, let's look at Karma's a bitch then. Um, it's an EP. Yeah. And so. Was it mostly because you're going on tour, you needed some new music? Because a lot of bands that have been around for a while, and Karma, you know, uh, Hellion started way back when, you could just sort of go out and play 
the catalog? Why, why make new music? I could have done that, but there was a number of different things that really um, were sort of affecting me, if, if you want to, want to say it. And, and mm-hmm. you know, as a, as, a, as a musician and a singer and writer and all that, I am a, a pretty sensitive person. Mm-hmm. And as time went by, um, there were a number of people that were saying, oh, the reason that she's not singing anymore is oh, she's blown her voice out or she's this or that or a bunch of just no, very hurtful things, you know. Right. But nonsense. Uh, you know, people... People would say, you know, especially on like the blabbermouth things, oh, well, why isn't she playing with such and such band? Or, we would have expected her to play with such and such band, or she should be doing this role or that or whatever it was, which was a, a lot of it, just total absolute nonsense. And so there was that point, of, you know, quite frankly, my feelings were very hurt over a lot of the comments and things like that. And I just had to go and, and do something. It's like, yeah, I, I have, you know, my, I've never had vocal problems in my entire life. Right. And um, so for, you know, a lot of those comments to be, to be out there was just ridiculous. It's, you know, the easiest way to solve all this stuff is to uh, put something new out. And, and so when you go to put something new out, do you think, okay, I need to sound like I did then? Or are you thinking, okay, we got to discover some new territory and give them something brand new that they don't expect? Neither. Um, I, I come from a, a background of, of, you know, people that inspired me were bands like, you know, Priest and Deep Purple and Black Sabbath and, and things like that. So that's where my heart is. If I'm writing something and I know I'm on the right track, I can feel it. You know, right. I, I, can, I can feel it in my bones. I feel it in my, my soul. Um, so that's that's where I, I start my, my writing process. I don't really write to sound current or anything like that. Occasionally, you know, through the past, I might have had a producer that wants to produce a little bit different or produce my vocals in a little bit different way for, you know, like, for example, on um, Will Not Go Quietly, the vocals were intensely produced a little bit different to make it sound like it wasn't in the 80s, you know? But right. but other than that, it's, it, you know, when we decided to, I, I decided that it needed to be recorded. I just started writing and, and got together with Max and we just went from there. It was not really any, anything other than, um, I consider myself to be quality control, the, the quality control officer of Hellion. And there's nothing going to be put out on a Hellion record that, that, you know, uh, isn't suitable for the, for the band. For so the band. I, I don't know if that answered your question. It, it did. You know, the other thing you mentioned here you mentioned Black Sabbath, and of course, you mentioned websites saying that you should be doing stuff. I guess we should address it. I mean, one of the rumors was you're going to go out there and be in this Ronnie James Dio tribute band, and you're going to sing all the Sabbath stuff. And you know, what was that? I mean, I know, I know that you had an association with Wendy and Ronnie with their, you know, management and stuff. But were were there any plans ever to go out and, and do a tribute to Ronnie? Well, after Ronnie passed, I right. was immediately contacted by some people that I knew uh, from a Japanese tour that I did, uh, you know, years back, mm-hmm. and they wanted to put together like a super group of you know, right, shred shred guitar player and all this kind of stuff, and go out and do a a tour of Japan initially and, and record as well, and. It, it just felt wrong. I, I you know, it was, it, it just really, really, it, it felt wrong. I was offered a hell of a lot of money to do it. And then when I said no the first time, they upped it again to, you know, 
uh, more money than I than I've made on any record uh, from any record company or anything like that. So it was a, a definitely a serious offer, but it it was not associated in any way with Wendy Dio. It was associated with some, some okay. Yeah, but I mean, those were sort of the rumors. They were they were sort of fast and furious that it was some kind of you know, female Ronnie impersonators. And he's like, well, come on, come on, people. Anne's a little more serious than that, at least I think, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and with me, you know, I had a, a friendship with Ronnie that spanned decades. Right. So it, it just seemed really, really wrong. I mean, I, I, when I, from the first time when I started working with Ronnie, I, I was fortunate I kept a journal and a diary because I, I, regarded it almost like going to school. If I was in the studio, I would be writing down what kind of gear we used, all kinds of things like that. And I remember very well, you know, uh, one of the days when Ronnie came in and he said, I don't want you guys doing cover tunes anymore. You're too, you know, you don't need to do that. You can write your own songs. And he was very, very adamant about that. So, uh, you know, we over the years we did, you know, I think uh, one or two things. But it was never, you know, he never really, um, and especially, you know, of his music, because he always wanted, it was his his vision for us to, you know, to stand on our own, as our own band. Which is important, because, you know, I I go to shows a lot, and I see a lot of bands that come out there that want to be the next big rock stars, and they spend all their time playing Aerosmith songs and Guns N' Roses songs, and you go... Wow, well, where's the original stuff? And so, you know, it, it does take sort of balls to get out there and, and put your own stuff out there, because otherwise, you're just a cover band, right? Um, well, Hellion, start, Hellion started originally doing cover tunes. There's no, you know, I won't deny that at no, all. No, no, no. But, but and, and that's a good place to learn your craft. It, re- it, it really is. Um, but, you know, as soon as we possibly could, we got rid of the cover tunes, you know, and... Um, and then, of course, when Ronnie said, don't, don't, don't even know. You don't, you don't need to do that. You guys write, if you want a song that sounds like such and such, just write a song. You know, so, um, yeah. But there was, you know, regarding some of the rumors, I, I don't even know where some of that stuff uh, got started. Other than, like I said, I did turn down the offer in, in Japan because it just, it felt wrong. And I definitely... You know, over the time period, I've got offers to do these cover bands and things. And I, I, I'm sorry, I wouldn't do it. I don't think that Ronnie would have wanted me to do it. That's yeah. just the way it is. The, another important person back in the day on the scene uh, that had a connection to you was Kim Fowley. Now, for me as a KISS fan, Kim wrote King of the Nighttime World, and that's sort of where I know the name. Um, what was your association with him and him bringing you over to L.A.? And did you learn anything from him? And, and you know, what was that connection? Well, first of all, I, uh, I've been playing as a musician for, you know, throughout my junior high and high school right. era. And I met a guy that I believe worked with him um, when I was a ball fan at a 4-H convention in Chicago. Right. <laughs> no idea. So earlier in probably like junior high, early high school, I got an opportunity to go and um, play in a band that Tommy Bolin was getting together. And it was kind of after Zephyr had broke up and he liked working with, he was one of the, the unusual musicians back in those days. He didn't care whether you were female or you were black or Mexican or what kind of race you were. He just liked playing with, you know, good musicians and he wanted me to play with him. 
put this band together. My parents absolutely would not allow it. You know, crossing state lines and all kinds of other things. Right. But um, by the time, you know, a couple of years had passed, Tommy Bowen's this huge celebrity. He's played with Billy Cobham. He's played with, you know, you, you name it. And so I looked at but my life is just passing me by, you know, it's a small town and I've got, you know, this one opportunity that you know, I couldn't do. And now that the guy that gave me the opportunities, um, you know, a huge star, then I get this phone call from Tim Fowler. He says, we're, you know, we're looking for a bass player. I actually initially he said keyboard or bass. And, um, uh, we want you to, you know, come to, to Los Angeles and this was in my, I think early my senior year of high school, and I was I was I was done. I was ready to to be gone from my my very very small town and their very small town ways, and just you know it was, it was I was literally going to leave one way or another at that point in time, even though I wasn't 18 yet, um, and went down to LA and Kim Valley was extremely. Um, Oh, I don't know how to say it. I'll just say, say it like it is. Uh, he would say, I remember the first time I walked into recording studio, he said, you know, the, the engineer was a little stressed. Why don't you go take care of him? Meaning, basically, you know, wanted me to perform some kind of sex act on him. And I was like, what? You know, because I really didn't come to L.A. just to be someone's prostitute or something. I came to L.A. to play music. And if I have to go through and do those kind of things in order to be in a band, it's not worth it because obviously they're not respecting my musicianship. Right. So I didn't, I didn't last in, you know, there for a couple of days before I was like, this is just not going to work. And, um, then, um, in later years, you know, not later years, but not very much later, I was talking to Leah Ford. She says, well, um, you know, you just need to tell Kim Sally, and I don't know if this is going to go on the radio, if you have to believe this, but just tell him to go fuck himself. And uh, if he if he says things like that to you, so I did, and and then another you know, few period later, we were trying to get this band together called Venus and the Razorblades, which was another one of concept bands. And I laughed that I could deal with him for about another you know week before it just got too much. But uh, I did learn a lot from him. I thought that he was brilliant when it came to uh, uh, sort of kamikaze marketing yeah. things, you know. He could get publicity without paying for it really easily. He knew all kinds of things. And and he was an outrageous character, but I, it was just a, a person that I just had a, I mean, personally had a hard time dealing, dealing with. with. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that, that up because when you look back on the history of rock, there there hasn't been sort of this plethora of female lead singers. You have Doro and you have Lita, like you mentioned. Did... Did, was it harder to get into the business? Because you had people like that that said, oh, she's a girl, she'll just go screw in the corner, that's what she's good for. Did you learn from that? And, and did, did you just want to, at some point, just want to give up and say, it's really not worth it? I mean, I love singing, but this is crazy. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about. Um, when I started working um, as a musician, I was a musician, you know, mm -hmm. a keyboard player, and I tried to be really good because I knew that I had to be better than the guys, really? you know, to be taken seriously. You know, first of all, in the early days, it was impossible to, get an, to even get an audition. Yeah. Somebody had to hear you, you know, and it was like, I'd show up at different bands, sound checks, I'd do all kinds of things to, you know, try to jam with people that were better than myself and older than myself. And that's, that's the way that 
I got a reputation was by actually having people hear me because right. if I was just going to call up on and respond to an uh, you know ad in the newspaper, no one would even talk to you. You know, um, there's a famous, pretty famous story, uh, which is all true. Uh, in the oh geez, it was late seventies, around maybe approaching 1980, um, a guy had heard me and, and wanted to get my tape to to Rainbow because Rainbow was looking for a, a keyboard player. Right. I got the tape tape to Rainbow and I, I didn't include that I, you know, I was female. I just put my initials and I had a picture of myself taken from the, you know, from the distance where you could see my keyboard set up and all that, but you couldn't really tell whether I was male or female. And I got the phone call to be asked to go out and fly out to, to New York where, where they were at that point in time, someplace back east, I think it was New right. York. And uh, as soon as they found out I was female, it was like, no way, you know? So, but that's the kind of stuff that, that would typically happen. And, um, you know, it was like even being a female in a band, I would, I would, used to make a joke. I'd have this t-shirt that said, I'm not the singer because everybody would then have these assumptions that you were the singer. If you, it, you know, all guys in one check. So, um, has that changed forward. at all, by the way? Has that, I mean, do, do, cause I know you had your own record label and, you know, new Renaissance. Has that changed? Do record labels see these things differently or is that still a, a, a struggle? I mean, it, it seems ridiculous in 2014 to even be talking about this, quite frankly. It, it, it absolutely does. There are so many stereotypes, though, you know? Right. And you asked, you asked earlier, uh, did it come to a certain point where you said this is not worth it? Yeah. Well, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you a little bit. You know, the, the stereotypes are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, for some reason, the music industry has uh, always had a hard time with white female singers singing with their full voice. Yep. Okay. Janis Joplin did it, but that was blues. And, um, you know, people, women are sort of expected to have this over feminine kind of voice. And, um, which is which is fine, but that is that has pretty much been the uh, the norm. You know, it was a, a situation where in the eighties, Van Halen's manager wanted to uh, to manage me and wanted me to leave Hellion and all kinds of things. Ray Daniels. But uh, no, this was Ed Leffler. Oh, okay. And and it was on it was contingent on my agreement to get fake boobs, to dye my hair blonde, to have my teeth and my nose done, and I was personally offended. I mean, I'm offended, and I didn't even live through it. I mean, I just, I, I can't believe that, that that actually happened. It seems so ridiculous, quite frankly. But it, it it does, and I and I'm sure that variations of that still occur right now. I have no doubt that at all in my mind about that. Right. So, um, uh, there were just certain stereotypes that were expected to be followed, and for some reason, it was a lot easier in 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 the UK and Europe. I never had anybody ever, you know, um, even come up with any, make any suggestions like that where those types of suggestions were, were very common. Um, and, and the same thing goes as when I first started playing, you know, in, in clubs, especially in, in Los Angeles, there was an expectation amongst many of the, the people that book clubs that there was a chick in the band that she was going to screw the book, you know, the person that was booking the, the, the show sure. and uh, I used to have to deal with that all the time I mean there's uh, you know that's some great stories on on that about or, or you know when you it's time to go get paid 
they'd expect for you to, uh, you know, put out before you got the band got paid. You know, I mean, just this ridiculous stuff. And I, and I wouldn't surprise me if that stuff still goes on. Well, you know, speaking of which, you, you've got a tour coming up. So let, let's let's first of all hope that that doesn't still go on because it'll make. For well, a we long got a tour manager, and, and, and he's a pretty <laughs> big guy, so I don't think that there'll be any problems with any of that stuff. <laughs> Good. It, it's a different world. I mean, you know, it's a different world when you're going out with a band and you're on tour because that entourage that you've got with you becomes your family and it right. becomes its own little army too. So no one messes around with anybody. Yeah. Um, let me ask you about that family. You've got Simon Wright. Uh, you know, he played with ACDC and Dio. How did he come about to, to, to join uh, the band and, and join you on tour? Well, I'll tell you, it's a, it's an interesting story. Um, like I said, after Ronnie passed, I was offered, you know, a number of these different like tribute things. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to do it. I didn't think it was respectful. Um, but to me, if somebody wants to listen to Ronnie's music, go listen to it. And, and, you know, his is the, you know, you listen to him. There's lots of YouTube videos. There's lots of wonderful things. And, and that's, that's all good. And I had come out of a band called, you know, not come out of, but I'd been briefly playing in a, in a group, not too briefly, a couple of years, called Detente. Right. And when that ended, I, I just wanted to go back and do the music that is most comfortable from my natural voice. And uh, I looked up the original guys, you know, the different people I've played with over the years in, in Hellion. And we'd only had two drummers, you know, in the course of like 30 years, there was really only two. There was Sean Kelly and there was Greg Pekka. Right. And neither of those two guys were involved in the music business anymore. So I reached out to a couple of different drummers, and I, I met up with Simon, um, our local pub where I very close to where I live. And we talked about things, and then I didn't hear from him for a whole long time. And I figured, well, that's it. You know, he's you know again. There's a lot of people still that have issues playing with bands with chicks in them. So, right. you know, I it's. I, I I respect everybody's opinion. That's that's. I certainly don't want to be in a band that, you know, where somebody doesn't want a female singer. You know, so, so I didn't know what the, the deal was. I didn't hear from him back for a long time, and then um, a number of months later, I ended up running into him at um, a Dio event that they had for, to raise money for the, uh, you know, the Stand Up and Shout Cancer right. Fund. And I was sitting there talking to Bill Matoyer about, you know, basically the demise of detente. And uh, Bill Matoyer said, hey, you know, who, uh, so I, I'm hearing rumors that you're going to get another band together. And who's who's going to be, be, you know, playing on it. And at that exact moment, Simon Wright came up and says, oh, I want to play drums on it. <laughs> I said, really? Okay. That's good. So uh, then we started talking about that. So that's how all that happened. Yeah, and and he's a, such a solid drummer. I mean, he you know, of course, he's doing the stuff with Jeff Tate right now as well. So, you know, we, we wish him certainly wish him all the best. Um, you know, I, I we we were supposed to do twenty minutes. We've gone over that. Is there anything else we need to cover? I mean, I could speak to you all day, quite frankly. But uh, I still well, I tell you, I I can take I I can continue on till two fifteen my time. So if you need a little bit more time, that that's okay. The next thing I've done is two fifteen. So. Well, any more questions? Yeah, I just, I just really had one because what I find fascinating is, and I mentioned it a little bit at the beginning, 
is you've had a chance to do uh, everything. You've seen the music business uh, from a, a radio perspective. You've seen it from being on a label, and you've seen it from being in a band. Uh, do, do you have a different appreciation for the music industry just in the sense that you see, I mean, do the, do all three of those things work together? Or is it sort of one against the other? Um, There's know. been times in, in, in the history of music right. where all of those things were very, very necessary. Right. And they had to work hand in hand. You needed the record company. You needed uh, a, a good band. You needed, you know, certain things that had to be all in place to have any chance at all. Now, right now, I don't even know, uh, this is, you know, being spoken from a person that actually owns a record company. I, I myself do not have the answer other than to tell you that the record companies do not play the role that they once played. Not at all. They, they don't. Um, you know, it's right now, record companies, um, you know, if, if they want you, then we talk to some of them. Um, they want your worldwide worldwide rights to everything, and they and rightfully they they need that. They want your download rights. They want the this, the that, the birch, the, the all these kind of things. Um, and rightfully I understand why because they're not making the money the way that they used to off selling LPs, cassettes, and CDs. Yeah. So, um, but at the same time, if a band does that, then oftentimes they're they're taking away their own source of revenue, which is is the merchandise. What do you do? You know, um, you're a band. You go out on the road. Um, most bands don't make money on tours. They usually lose money on tours and uh, they hope to make that money that they lose back on the merch. So it's it's a very, very uh, tricky business and it's, it's harder now than it ever has been. Yeah, so, so we'll end on this. And how do you get an album or a tour to be successful? I mean, is it all just social media or are we sort of just spinning our wheels? Well, I have a philosophy, and it may be incorrect, and maybe it's right. right. Um, back in, in the eight, 1980s, there was no so, social media, right. um, but there was pay trading. Yep. And ultimately, to me, I'm not really interested in going and seeing a band unless I like the music. Agreed. So if you hear something that you like, well, well, I'll go check that out. That sounds really cool. Yeah, you know, and you start listening to a tape more and more and more, and you're a fan. That's, that's the way it's supposed to be. So it certainly worked for me, Metallica. Yeah, it did. It worked for Hellion coming up too. You know, sure. we were on the same labels in Europe and all that kind of stuff. So the tape trading definitely it, it was um, what social media has become today. Right. Now the difference is that everybody that's got a Pro Tool set up and a computer can make their own demos. And I'd say there's a whole lot of them that are out there that are pretty miserable. I, I mean. People send me demos, you know, recordings every day. I I can't listen to them all. Whereas a long time ago, if somebody actually went in the studio and they had a demo and they had sets made and things like that, that was more special. So um, with regards to, you know, social media and things like that, I think social media is very important. Still, people have to hear your music. And getting them to hear it is, is the most important step that there is. I lament the fact that radio is no longer around because with radio you used to have a a captive audience. You're driving home in your car at five o'clock and on comes the you know, telling you the bad attitude or you know, whatever the the track happens to be yeah. and, and you're there listening to it. And 
and suddenly, wow, you've got, you know, the, the clubs or the venues or the theater is full, you know? So, uh, that's something that we're, we're very much lacking right now is, is radio. I think the death of radio has made a horrendous impact. Yeah. I mean, we, with, we've still uh, got serious satellite, but a lot of it is specialty channels, right? You have the eighties channel and you have the, 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 the 90s channel and the hit one channel. Like, there's really no place to find new music, but you know, and the same thing is with, you know, a lot of, uh, of things. It's either you're a hair band yep. or you're a thrash band. Well, Hellion's never, I really never considered Hellion to be a hair band. And I never considered us to be a thrash band. Right. So it's uh, all these category, you know, the categorization, <laughs> easy for me to say, right? Yeah. Um, all of that is, it, it hasn't helped the music business at all. You know, um, we're, we're going on this next tour. And one of our shows is in um, this is Houston, I'm thinking of. And there's a big variety of, of acts that are on this, this festival. Right. And you've got, you know, fresh bands, and you've got Tony McAlpine, and, you know, fortunately we're headlining. And people are going, well, isn't that a weird combination of music? How's that going to go over? I think it's great. I love festivals like that. I remember back in the, you know, a long time ago when you had things like... Uh, not the Us Festival, but the one, I forget the one that I'm thinking of. And um, where, where Rainbow played, and they had it was like Rainbow and Earth, yeah. Wind, and Fire, and yeah, all these I'm different kinds think. of bands. I think that's and the same Cal one with Sabbath. Cal Jam. Yeah, it was Cal Jam. Right. And you had ELP and just all this big variety of different kinds of music. And I think it's great. I think that's, you know... I think that that's wonderful because hey, you don't like a band, you go watch, go get yourself a beer, walk, walk in the beer tent, in the bathrooms or something. But um, I think that it's 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 great to have mix where people can hear different music. You might not like everything, but you know maybe you find a new band that you you like that you didn't think. Yeah, you, so, you know, up here in Montreal we have uh, Heavy Montreal, which is a, a festival that that's sort of in that in that vein. I mean, it's mostly all you know, hard rock, but this year they had Metallica, but they also had the Dropkick Murphys, and they had uh, Anthrax, but they also had Twisted Sister. Uh, it was a nice mix, and it's it's a great festival. I mean, you know, 80,000 people turned up over two days, so. Well, that's awesome. I mean, back in the 80s, you know, it would be mixed. It would be like, you know, we'd play, we did shows with uh, Social Distortion. Right. We did shows with Slayer. We did shows with Keel. Wow, <laughs> Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie Keel. Yeah, you know, guy. I mean, uh, it was it was just very, you know, and that's just the way it used to be. But but ultimately, I think the ultimate challenge with any kind of music is getting people to hear it because if people hear it and if they like it, then you're in. Yeah, and I think that's what we need to remind people. Uh, Karma's a bitch comes out October seventh, and of course. Uh, Correct. I'm assuming it's going to be on iTunes and Amazon and, and all those places, right? Absolutely. And I tell you, uh, we've got a website up, www.hellion.us. And what I'm doing uh, is every day I'm offering a free download yes. so that people can hear some of the old music that they're going to be hearing on, on the tour. And... Um, some surprises and lots of free content on there. So yeah, and you can also uh, stream Hell Hath No Fury. Yeah, and I am streaming Hell Hath, Hath No Fury and things like that, so that people can under you know kind of get it and hopefully they'll go out and buy it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, 
you know, hopefully they'll go to check out the October tour as well. Or you're, you're playing pretty much everywhere from Los Angeles to Toronto to Tulsa and all that. So um, thank you, Anne. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure as well. Bye-bye now. Okay, bye. Bye.
What you just heard was Get Ready, recorded at Sound City Studios, produced by Ronnie James Dio, and that was the band Hellion. Good interview with Anne, Mitch. Yes, absolutely. She, another one. I, I love the fact that she got into her personal stories, the personal side. And, of course, it, it's nice to see that the band is back together. They, they've they been in and out. They stop, they go, they stop, they go. And, uh, you know, uh, they're coming. They're on tour. So it's nice to have another band that's still shaking it out there, as I like to say, shaking it up. Definitely. And if you don't know the band well, a great place to start is with the album To, Hel- to Hellion and Back. And it's a, a double CD set that's currently out, 1983 through 2014. Uh, a lot of great music on that. And it includes that song we just heard that was, uh, again, produced by, by Ronnie James Dio and recorded at the famous Sound City Studios. So let's talk some Kiss. You're the guy who is kind of known as the the kiss expert if you will you've uh, I know the kiss bird you've been interview yeah, you've been interviewing them for decades literally starting with Gene Simmons way back in what was it 1980 June 11th 1980 yeah yeah and you just I mean you continue it to this day you just recently interviewed Ace on your one-on-one with Mitch LaFon podcast which was great let's, yeah, let's absolute coup I mean Uh, I was supposed to get like 10 minutes with Ace, and it went on for just two minutes shy of half an hour. And um, it was just great. It was great. He answered all kinds of stuff about the Fraley's Comet, which he usually doesn't like to talk about. Talked about Kiss Reunion stuff, stuff he doesn't like to talk about. Uh, He he did a lot of talking about stuff he doesn't normally talk about. And uh, I got to give him credit. He he got the questions, and he didn't just toss them aside. He answered them honestly, and uh, really great. Absolutely refreshing. Yeah, you know, and I know all the headlines uh, on Blabbermouth and Brave Words, and I can't blame them because I know that's probably what gets the most click-throughs uh, for them. You know, they picked up the... The, the comments little, about Gene and Paul. Yeah, yeah, the, which, you know, I guess are some people consider negative, but... And what's funny is that he really didn't go negative that much with Gene and Paul. They were more like off offhanded comments or quips and... They were really not what the interview was about, but he did say what was what was printed in all those places, so it was fair of them to do it. Right. But that yep. really wasn't the focus of what the whole 30 minutes were. That was, you know, I think about eight seconds of the whole interview. But okay, whatever, you know, controversy sells, and that's the game, and, you know, you can't blame him for playing that game. That's that's what people do, and that's perfectly fine. And you know what? I'm I'm happy they reposted it. And if they have to repost it again and say something even more negative, well, then so <laughs> right. be it. You right. know, it, it brings the ears to the interview, and it was—I really enjoyed the interview. Let me tell you some of my favorite parts. I loved when you pointed out to uh, to Ace, which I guess is something I knew, but I never really thought much about it. And when when you said it to him, I thought it was really cool, and he seemed to, in a way, get a kick out of it too. That that he was the only guitar player in Kiss to play with all three official drummers of kiss yep. and and well but you know I, I pointed out tour significantly with them because bruce did do um you know uh the uh, kiss convention where peter came out but even though mm-hmm. peter didn't play drums and then they did the right. unplug thing but you that's not touring that's not really playing with a guy that's just you know hanging out for an afternoon uh ace did tours i mean full-fledged weeks on the road with all three guys only one and um 
I was kind of hoping that he would go a little further in his answers in terms of the technicality and who added more oomph to the songs. But uh, you know what? He he was very diplomatic, and and I don't blame him, quite frankly. Now, is it is it interesting that that he re, his his girlfriend or fiance? You know, I hate to go gossipy here. John would probably not approve of this, but it recently posted on her Facebook page that. Ace has put the ball in Gene and Paul's court for a reunion, but but when she singled out what she was calling the real kiss or however she phrased it, she left Peter's name out and said it's Ace, Paul, and, and Gene. And is, is there any significance to that that, that maybe – Ace is saying, "Hey, I'm I'm willing to to rejoin with you guys without Peter and and I don't know. What are your thoughts on that?" Well, I'm going to go with my thoughts based on and I'll call it hearsay for the lack of a better word. Uh, but over the years, I have heard that Ace um, isn't a big Peter fan. Uh, you know, from the back in the days with Unmasked, I heard that he was very happy when Eric uh, Carr came in. Uh, I heard that. When they went to Japan and had Eric Singer put on the cat makeup for the first time, that he thought the band sounded better. Now, again, I'm not Ace, so I can't speak for him. These are just the things I've heard from from fans and from people right. that worked inside. And you know, uh, and I also I believe he gave an interview earlier this year where he goes, uh, "People want me and Peter to be best friends. That's just not true." And, you know, if I've misquoted him again, please feel free to correct me. But I, I, I don't think he really necessarily feels that Peter adds anything to the lineup. And um, I was kind of hoping that we could address that with the question I asked him in my interview. But I just don't get a sense that uh, he feels that Peter is important to the mix at this point. And I think uh, Rachel, by posting what she did the way she did it, um, sort of reveals that. Yeah. And do you think that he knew she was posting this, or do you think she just went went online and posted it without his permission? Um, I, I, again, you know, I can't, I can only guess, but I think that uh, she has her Facebook. She's a, a grown woman, and she posted whatever came to her mind, which is, pretty much what you and I do when we go to our Facebook. I don't check with my wife, and I'm pretty sure you don't check with your wife when you put a status update. And so I think she just um, thought it would be uh, a good way to stimulate some conversation. And so she, she went she went ahead and did it. I, I don't think that uh, Ace sits around and checks Facebook, quite frankly. I think he has other priorities. Right. And right. again, listen, I'm not him. I can't uh, uh, pretend to speak for him. These are just guessing from you know, a fan, you know, sitting, sitting behind my keyboard kind of thing. Now to turn it around, you know, we were talking about how Ace feels about Peter, but what about, what about Paul and Gene? And I guess, you know, again, guys, we're just speculating here. We, we don't know these guys personally or anything, right. but, but we, just, we've heard things. There was even an interview with the, the kiss keyboardist of the, I guess it was late eighties, uh, Corbett. Gary Corbett, yeah, on on another podcast, Decibel Geek Podcast, where he mentioned, which I thought this was kind of a bombshell, that at, at some point, I guess it would have been the late 80s or maybe uh, late, maybe even 1990, at some point, he claimed that Paul and Gene 
were talking about a reunion with Ace and Eric in makeup, Eric yep. Carr, that is. is that, do, and he also mentioned in that interview that when they would talk about Peter back in the, the late 80s or mid-80s with Gary Corbett, it was always negative. But with Ace, they always seemed to smile or, or, or laugh about the stories. It, it, but lately I, we see so much negativity, finally. especially from Paul towards Ace. I mean, do we, do we think that Paul and Gene have more respect for Ace than Peter? Um, you know, I, I don't know if they have more respect for Ace. It certainly appears that way, but I think it might also just be a business sense. I think that a lot of people around this world or, or, you know, who took up the guitar from Scotty into all the, or Dimebag there, they were influenced by Ace. There's a lot of people out there that say, I was influenced by Ace. I was influenced by Gene. Paul is the front man. There are not a lot of people out there that say that I was influenced by Peter Chris, and I think they understand that getting all four guys in the band is difficult, if not undoable, whereas getting Ace would, whoops, just bring Kiss to that next level and change their fortunes and change their ticket sales and change their appeal to fans, mm-hmm. and that's really all they need. Uh, it's sort of like... If Guns N' Roses were to do a reunion, do you really need Steven Adler? Do you really need Izzy? Or do you only really need Slash standing next to Axel? And that's all you, you know, and I think that's... You need Slash with the sunglasses and the top hat. And suddenly they're going to do four nights sold out in an arena in every single city in the U.S., you know? And their credibility, everybody would go, oh, the real band is back together. And it could be... Three complete strangers who's never played in the band before on drums and bass and stuff. But people would see Axel and Slash and go, that's the band. And I think with Kiss, if Ace came back, and no disrespect to Tommy, who I happen to love. I think he's just great as a human and as a guitar player. But I think if they bring Ace back, all of a sudden fans go, Kiss. And then they go, oh, yeah, but you, the drummer, is, it doesn't matter. Ace is there. Right. And I think that's enough. Yeah, I, and I, I agree. I think I think Gene and Paul know that they appreciate that, and um, you know I think it frustrates them a bit that Ace said in my interview that he quit twice, and I think it frustrates them that they know that they could go to that next level, and Ace is balking. Yeah, but, it's funny when when it's funny that you mentioned that Ace said that in your interview because I. I uh, this is, uh, you know, I spend time just thinking about things, but uh, which uh, probably <laughs> the average person would think would think this is insane. But I, I really thought about that a lot after I listened to your interview with him. And is it possible? Because again, we've all heard rumors and stories from from people. But is it possible that that somewhere on that Psycho Circus tour? Even, even I guess when they went, where'd they go overseas when Peter left and, and Ace, uh, Eric put on Peter's makeup and Ace was still in the band. Well, that um, was, that was on the farewell tour that, that yeah. Eric Singer came in. Right, right. At, at that point, you, is there, is there a, a possibility that, yep, yeah, Ace thinks he quit, but maybe Paul and Gene were kind of never planning to ask him back after that leg of the tour anyways. So maybe, maybe, they're both kind of right. Is there any possibility in that? 
you know, from what I've heard over the years is that Ace had a service contract, which was a year or two years, and they wanted to, this is what I've heard, that they wanted to renew at a certain amount of money, and Ace said, no, 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 I'm worth a lot more, and therefore a contract wasn't tendered at the money Ace wanted, and Ace wasn't going to accept the contract that was tendered at the low. I mean, this is what I've heard. Right, right. And so... I think if that's true, then it sort of goes both ways. Kiss could certainly say and and be totally right. Well, we didn't ask him back, you know, because we didn't make that offer at that extra money. And Ace could certainly say, well, I quit because they made me an offer, but I walked away. So I think it's one of those where they could pro- yeah. probably both be right. And they and if you put the facts on the table, you'll go, oh yeah, you're right. Oh wait, oh yeah, you're right too. Huh? Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> So who knows? The, the Kiss world is complicated. Um, I've spoken to roadies and, and people who were around the band when Eric came and did that Japan tour. And every person has said, and again, maybe they lied to me, but they said Ace was really happy. The band was really happy. Everybody thought they sounded great. They, saw, they thought the song sounded better. They, 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 the song sounded as they should. They were on time. They weren't slow. And you know, I think I, I would have to go back to the book, and you may know it better than me, but I think Paul says something similar to that in, in his book. Yeah. That Ace, and I think Gene has said, maybe said that in his book too, that when they did that, that suddenly Ace was playing better and sounded better. I mean, sure. whether he was or it was just they felt, you know, the overall sound of the band was better. Who, who knows? But I, I, I think that even Paul and Gene have, have, have said that. And I've said in many interviews and on many other shows and many other places on, on my Facebook, when people ask me, um, what's your favorite lineup? I keep saying that one with Ace and Eric Singer. And it's too bad that they only did those few shows in Japan because if you look at the shows or you get you, you pick up a bootleg or whatever, you go to YouTube, they really sounded great. After the reunion tour, which they sounded great on, Psycho Circus tour, they sounded dreadful. The Farewell tour, they sounded even more dreadful. That tour with Peter and Tommy on the uh, Aerosmith thing, they sounded dreadful. But right sandwiched in between, there was that little pier with Eric Singer and Ace, and they sounded like a band, and they sounded like Kiss, the band. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I have said over and over and over again since that time, you know, for the last, whatever it was, 2002, 2001, so the last 13, 14 years, that lineup needs to get into a studio and make a full-fledged studio album with a hotshot producer, whether, whether it's Bob Bezrin, Bob Rock, or somebody else, just, just not the band, <laughs> not Ace or Paul, please. Right, right. Um, I think they would make the best Kiss album of the last 25, 30 years easily. I, I mean, I, just, I really do. Yeah, and what a way to kind of go out. That, that would be that would be really amazing. Who, I, be a great way. I, I, I think that Gene may be into that idea if, if it were put before him. But I do feel like there's something with Paul and, and I don't know if the rock and roll hall of fame thing shook him up or, or, or what's up, but I feel like there's this, uh, anger and, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say denial, but he, he, he just has trouble accepting that, that listen, ACE is, is really popular among the, the kiss fan base. Yeah, and even the casual fan, you know. 
the casual fan love Ace. And, you know, it's nothing against Tommy. I mean, people always go, well, if you love Ace, you'd hate Tommy. No, it's not the case. I think Ace is just, as Ace said again in my interview, he's a character. And I think people empathize with the character of Ace Fraley. And people also love the guitaring of Ace Fraley. And I think what might frustrate uh, the folks in the KISS camp is that Ace put out Anomaly and the fans dug it. And now he's put out Space Invader and they really dig it. And I think they just want him to fall on his face, fall flat on his face and everybody go, ah, ha, see, look at the loser. We knew it. We told you. And that's not happening. And I think it's irritating. It's sort of like a thorn in their side. Like, right. Oh, bloody hell. Can you just be that fucking screw up? Sorry for the language. Can you just be that screw up and leave us alone? Just prove to up, prove to everybody that we're right and you're wrong. And it's yeah. not happening. I mean, yeah. Space Invader, you know, is it the greatest album ever made? Well, no. But is it a really good, solid album that's fun and worth listening to? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I think that irritates them. When people go, Sonic Boom could have been better, Monster could have been better, but goddamn, this is the best Ace album since 1978, and that's like, oh, damn. Yeah, I, I really like those two records, though Sonic Boom, and I, I thought Monster was just just a great record. Uh, really, a lot of just great songwriting on that record, and I like him too. But people out there don't seem to agree with us. There's a lot of folks out there when you go to the Kiss websites or the, that say, oh. Could have been better. Oh, it sucked. Oh, the Gene songs are weak. I thought it was a good album. Yeah, I think Gene has some great songs on there. I mean, on both those records. But anyways, enough, enough, enough of that. One last thought on Kiss, and then we'll wrap up today's show. You know, you mentioned Tommy Thayer, and we've had Tommy on Talking Metal, and he's done so much more to beyond the the Kiss stuff. Uh, black and blue and and just such a great guitar player and and somebody who's been involved in the hard rock scene for so long but i i thought it was and of course this didn't get a headline but there was i'm i'm assuming it's online somewhere but down here in new york we have a local newspaper that they give away free called the village voice and they did an interview with uh with Ace, which uh, a story on Ace, which I just thought was a great, great read. If you haven't read it, and and in it, he he basically says that listen, I don't I don't have hard feelings towards Tommy. Uh, he says some some nice things about Tommy, basically saying that if it weren't Tommy, it would be somebody else up there wearing the the oh, makeup that he, that he made famous and basically playing him on stage. And, uh, you know, I thought that was a really nice thing for him to say. And I think he even says, I like Tommy. He, he says something very positive about, about Tommy. And again, that didn't make any head, headlines anywhere. Um, but, well, because but really it's not sexy, it's, you know, right. saying that he likes a guy is not yeah. like, uh, I hate you, you know, people like controversy and let's not forget Tommy Thayer was Ace Fraley's guitar tech or assistant on those farewell tour and reunion tour. I mean, he was, Tommy was backstage working the kiss camp, uh, helping out. And so, um, you know, why would Ace hate him? I mean, they worked together for, I guess it was six years all told. Right. Right. So, you know. All right. Well, on that note, we'll wrap things up with the title track off of Ace's new record, a little sound sample of that. Make sure you go to iTunes and buy the whole song 
or to Amazon. I've actually been buying a lot of tracks on Amazon lately. Guys, support Talking Metal with a PayPal donation. And uh, again, use those Amazon links to open up. Go to Talking Metal, click on the Amazon link in today's show notes, and that'll open up your Amazon and you can make your purchases and we get a small kickback on that. And I see you guys are using that link and I really appreciate the support. And again, listen to Mitch on his own podcast. I'm actually involved with it. Uh, a lot. I, I yeah. help Mitch put it together and uh, co-host uh, probably like 50% of the episodes, if not more. So yeah. I love oh, yeah. being a part of your show, Mitch. Again, guys, check me out on Mitch's show. One-on-one with Mitch LaFon. It's on Spreaker, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, and of course iTunes and TalkingMetal.com. So <laughs> thank you, Mitch. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Accept our fate.